Open in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We are back into this great short epistle, but it has a hard-hitting message for us in chapter 3. And as we open there, let me pray one more time just to set our hearts. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that Jesus came as the word and that he is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us, and he is our teacher. God, we want to come under his mastership over us, his lordship. We want to humble ourselves under your word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, that he would be enlivening the scripture to our minds, and that we would hear this message. We thank you for the heart of the Apostle Paul, his shepherding ability, his way that he connected to this local church that transcends that time even to our lives, where his words that he wrote are inspired scripture. And God, we want to yield to your text, and we want it to transform our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians is the practical section of this book of the Bible. Things are going to turn very practical very quickly. And there is a theme here that is sort of an unlikely sin that he's addressing. Something that we don't often talk about. Though a lot of us are guilty of this sin to one degree or another at one time in our lives. Or or perhaps we have this sin that's going on all the time. But he's addressing it in its most dangerous form. And it's the sin of laziness or being idle. That sin was happening so badly and it was so pervasive and it was, so, it was happening on such a deep level that it was actually disrupting things in the church. And it was sort of beginning to fragment what was going on that was so special here at Thessalonica. Remember, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were missionaries. They had established this church and they did it right. They lived with this this church, with these people. And so they loved them deeply. But Paul had been away for a few months and he was now in Corinth, sort of the New York City of that time, the metropolitan area that was blowing and going. But it was filled with all kinds of sin and difficulty. But instead of being consumed with himself in Corinth, his heart was bleeding back to this church that he loved, that he thought was really taking off and doing well. But he heard that it had some sin that was going on, and he wants to address it in this chapter. You remember, just as we sort of dived into chapters 1 and 2, this church was shaking up on the inside over some trials that they were going through, some afflictions. We don't know if it was physical abuse or verbal or both, but we know it was really bad. It was so bad that they were thinking that this was the day of the Lord judgment. They were beginning to question whether or not Paul's teaching on the rapture was really true for them, or they had missed the rapture perhaps. And in verse 2, it says that they were being quickly shaken in mind. At least that's what Paul was saying for them not to do. They were being alarmed, which that word is used for earthquakes. They were shaking up inside. And so the Lord comforted them with a lesson on the end times. And we've talked through how Jesus is going to return and dethrone Antichrist and how this church was not under condemnation and how the church 
in the end times will not suffer the judgment that unbelievers will in the end. So he exhorted them to stand firm and to be encouraged that they were God's church, God's people. And now in verses 1 through 5, Paul is shifting gears a bit. And after he's sort of comforted them in general, he wants to now target specifically a sin that was permeating through the local church. And it was the sin of laziness. Now, I don't know if them being shaken up about the end times and about how they were suffering and the idea of them being lazy connects, really. It's almost like you've got two sort of dynamics going on. It's almost like passive-aggressive behavior. You've got aggressive people that were shaken up and, and worried about the suffering that was going on, and then you had people that were kind of going, all right, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. And they weren't taking responsibility for their lives whatsoever. That's where we begin in chapter 3. He's dealing with this sin. And in verses 1 through 5, what Paul is doing is something that really kind of opened my eyes this week to how pastoral Paul really was, how pastorally gifted he was. Because Paul wants to shift gears and target a specific sin that was going on in the church, and he wants to motivate this local church to deal with it. And the way that he does it is very pastoral. He, instead of barging through the doors and saying, here's this sin that's going on and you need to deal with it, He begins to infuse them with hope and with encouragement in the gospel first. It's one thing to tell somebody that they're in sin, and it's another thing to say, let me encourage you for a while and tell me, tell you how you're doing well spiritually, and let me encourage you about the gospel and how you have hope. And now can I also address something that's going on in the church? Let me let me motivate you to have some hard conversations. And that's what he's doing here in these first five verses. He's opening them up and laying a foundation, a groundwork, to talk about a sin that has crept in that really has some serious moral implications. People were so lazy and they were so against working during this time that they literally were being questioned as to whether they were unbelievers in the first place. Paul is going to say in verses 6 through 15 that some of these people are, are, they're so just irresponsible that their influence is something that you need to sort of stay away from and guard yourself from. So we're going to talk about a lot of that next time. But I want to show you how Paul opens them up, first and foremost, to this discussion. Because there are some hard conversations that this church was needing to have. There are some sins that are beneath the sin of laziness, aren't there? I mean, there's this whole idea that certain people just reject the idea that God has a call on their life. There are people who say, you know, I I really don't think I need to do anything. I need to sort of shirk my responsibility. And there were people in the church that were actually sponging off of other people. They were abusing people. They were not working at all. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. It says, for even... When we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. That's the word laziness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 
This command is what Paul is going to lead into in verse 4. He's talking about how they need to follow through with this command. It it was something that Paul had taught them back in 1 Thessalonians. He'd already mentioned how you need to be working and not being idle and you need to earn a living. You need to work a job. And Paul now is trying to be very pastorally sensitive because he's saying, I told you that before and I really believe that you want to make good on that command, but I kind of have to bring it up again. Sounds like kind of healthy parenting, doesn't it? So he's trying to open them up to say, listen, either you're in this sin or you're allowing other people to sin in this way. And they might not be believers at all because they're trying to teach the church that it's okay to sort of let go and let God in terms of your responsibility. There were people in the church who were not working a job, but they were working the system. They were working the church. They're saying, hey, you know what? I'm a great opportunity for you to serve me. That's what they were doing. Look at verse 11 again. At the end of the verse, there's a play on words. They were not busy at work, but busy bodies. So they were busy, all right. But they weren't busy about what they needed to be doing in the first place, which was working a job. Now, here's a question. Why weren't these people working? The Bible really doesn't say directly. A lot of people, theologians and commentators, will say, look, it was because... All of this talk about the end times made people so concerned about that that they said, well, I'm not going to work. Jesus is coming back, so why do I need to work? You know, we've got heaven, so I don't need to do anything. That's one possible reason. Maybe Acts 2.44, where it talks about how all the believers had all things in common. Maybe they were becoming so communal that they went from community to communism. And they're saying, look, you know, you owe me and I need, I need to have... Um, everything. I, you know, the rich should s- supply its goods down to the poor, and so I'm going to keep myself poor, so I'm necessary. I, you know, this is my job is to be provided for, and that's perhaps what people were doing. It's an opportunity for people to serve me, you know. I mean, sometimes you have uh, kids that grow up into adults, and they stay adults, and they continue to feed off of their parents' provision, and that can be a good thing, but At a certain point, kids need to be sort of shoved out of the nest, right, if they have talents and gifts and abilities to make a living. And, um, you know, though parents are responsible, they're also responsible to push young adults out of the nest so that they will work. Well, it's the same thing within the church. Some people might say, I'm too busy serving Jesus to work a job. You ever heard forms of that? People who perhaps shouldn't even be full-time in ministry, but they think they should be, and so they're just busy studying the Bible or doing their thing, and they're not making ends meet. It's not working out, and I don't know. We might have had that stripe in the church back then. Too busy studying my Bible, too busy investing in the kingdom. There are people who are separatists where they say, look, I don't want to work for this secular company or that boss, that sinner. I don't want to be around these people. I want to just be spiritual and be separate, but sometimes you got to work a job in an environment where you've got some unsafe people around you, where you're submitting to people who aren't fair, but you're doing it to honor the Lord. Could have been something like that. I remember a guy who was trying to get a job in insurance, and he was sort of spiritualizing his work ethic and saying, I can't be a greedy person. I can't be money-oriented. But you can't be a salesman and say that, right? (laughs) There were tests that he had to take where it was trying to diagnose how driven a person this person 
was. And he kept answering them in ways where he's saying, look, you know, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That that doesn't apply there. I mean, they're wondering, are you going to close the deal? Are you going to make the sale? Do you have any drive whatsoever? And so he kept failing the test. But because, uh, you know, I I, I knew this guy, we, we kept counseling him, look, it's okay. You can love to make money. It's just you can't love money, right? That's the root of all evil. So anyway, there are people who form all kinds of ways to be lazy, right? You can misapply scripture or leverage scripture in a way that can get you out of doing work all over the place. But the Bible is balanced and addresses these issues in a balanced way. I I knew so many people that I counseled who were in their 20s and 30s who would just wriggle out of being responsible. People who acted unemployed when they were employed. You know, they were, they were set up to make money, but they would bag on their boss so much, and it was always his fault that their, their employment was sort of suspended, or, or they, they wouldn't make all that they could make with the talents that God had given them. And it was kind of frustrating to me, but I would just try to, again, say that you need to be responsible in the Lord. I knew a guy one time where... I would go to public places, anywhere that was public and free, and I would see this person. The post office, the library, Barnes & Noble. I mean, this guy, he was a professional, sort of wandering, single guy who, who would, you know, who would never work. And he was in school, and he was getting another degree, and he was living off of his parents' money that he would talk about, but he would never take responsibility for what he needed to do for himself. And he would spiritualize it, and he would sit down with me, and I I was then studying for my ordination exam, and so I was in Barnes & Noble sort of um, after hours looking at the books, and he would come up and want to ask me questions. And I thought, well, maybe this is a good opportunity for me to try to draw this person into church. And so I would invite him to my Bible study and say, hey, and, and get to know him a bit. But he would ask me strange, bizarre questions all the time. Like, you know, I was watching TV the other day and there's this TV preacher. And what do you think about him? And what, you know, I heard he drives this. And is that OK for him to drive that level of, you know, automobile? And, and I wonder what he makes. And, and I would just kind of like talk to him and. You know, sort of year after year, he would come and do this, and we would see each other. And um, eventually, I had to make a decision, and I kind of made it on principle of the scripture, like what we're studying now, and just said, you know, I think that I'm sort of enabling some facade in your life that things are okay by talking to you about spiritual things or answering your latest Bible trivia question. And so, I'm now no longer going to answer any of your questions anymore. I mean, does that sound unspiritual or what? I mean, I had to think that through, you know. Do I really want to cut this off because I'm trying to reach him? But I began to think I'm enabling this. I'm, I'm helping to salve his conscience when he really needs to realize that he needs to be in church, he needs to be working a job, and he needs to be taking responsibility for himself. And so the next time he asked me one of these sort of bizarre Christian questions, I just said, hey, can we talk about the gospel in your heart? Let's talk about the Lord and, and how are you doing. And let's talk about, you know, what church you're involved in and are you accountable to anyone? And so, for some reason it kind of cratered the discussion. I don't know, but he, he didn't come around as much. But when he did and he tried it again, I just kept coming back with the gospel in his heart and how he's doing and tried to bring accountability into his life. And then a year or so later, 
Judy saw him in the post office, and uh, they were talking. And he looked at Judy, and he said, so how is Mark doing? And I thought, wow. <laughs> and she just smiled and said, he's doing fine. <laughs> and because she knew the greater issues. And he said, how's he doing on that exam, which I, you know, conquered years before. But it's it just, it's wild to think that certain people are spinning out of control, and they don't even know it. I mean, because he looked all together, but he was out of control. Now, a more extreme version um, also happened one time when I was an elder and, and trying to counsel and shepherd the flock. And there was a family where the husband was, he was a drug abuser and he was an alcoholic. And they had several kids and they lived in kind of a small sort of shack. And he, he would work jobs and lose jobs, and he'd have a job and lose a job, and he'd basically be spending his money on alcohol, and he'd come home and be drunk and beat the children, and, and it was just a rough, rough situation. And eventually, as elders, we had to make a decision uh, you know, as to whether or not this man was violating these principles or not, because these kids were, were malnourished and not being taken care of. So we had to understand that this person probably isn't a believer because he's not providing for his family. He has abandoned them. And he has, he has found a way for him, for him to be lazy and to, to squander even money that he was earning. And he, would, he went into this employer at our church um, and and went back to him for a job, and this employer was very evangelistic and very open to, to this man. And so the employer sat with him and prayed with him and tried to share Christ with him and believed that he had come to faith in Christ. And so he got a job again and did it by sort of, you know, superficially acting like he was a believer. And then ultimately things didn't work out again, and we had to work with this man and ultimately discipline him because... He was not providing for his family. He wasn't willing to work to eat. So these are deep issues. And, and chapter 3 really begs some hard conversations. That's my point. There are some difficult conversations that come up with these kinds of issues. It, it might seem like an issue like laziness is not as clear cut. And probably in some cases it's not. But when it's this severe... When, when people's lives are being affected spiritually and physically, it warrants this kind of hard conversation where you've got to move in. But how did Paul move into these conversations? And how was he motivating the church to interact with people? Well, we find his pastoral skill in verses 1 through 5. Because he's opening up the church to be willing to have hard conversations. Hard discussions. To do the hard thing. And what we're going to find is five motivations to do the hard thing. Five motivations to do or say difficult things. First of all, notice in verse 1, he wants to move this church. He wants to open them up through prayer. Because Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us. Pray for us. That's his pastoral approach. Doesn't sound very heavy-handed, does it? basically saying, pray for me and Timothy and Silas. Pray for us. I mean, here you have the Apostle Paul. He's the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's top of his class, studied under Gamaliel, the premier professor and leading rabbi. He was the church planner. He was the preacher. He was the author of books like Romans. He's an elite philosopher, theologian, and pastor and preacher. 
And he says, I can't do this in my own strength. Pray for me. It's a great way to begin a conversation when you're trying to to move someone is to open yourself up and be humble, to be transparent, to be willing to, to show that you don't have it all together. And Paul is also saying, pray for something that's beyond us. Let's think in terms of the impossible. Let's think in terms of what only the Holy Spirit can do. What we can't do in and of ourselves. And what he says is, pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, let's pray not for my own personal needs at this point. Let's not pray for me as much as pray that we can be used again. Pray that God's word will speed ahead like it did at your church. Here you have Paul who's in Corinth, and you know Corinth was kind of a messed up place. If you read First and Second Corinthians, it's an autobiography written by Paul talking about false teachers, factions in the church, people grouping up under certain ones, you know, like uh, Apollos or, or Cephas or Christ or Paul, you know, which, which person was baptized by whom, you know, and, and so there was all kinds of division that was going on and people teaming up and people backbiting and saying mean things, trying to discredit Paul's apostolic authority and leadership. Uh, There was sexual immorality, as you know, incestual relationships. And it was just a messed up place. And so Paul is saying, please pray for us because we can't turn this thing around. And if, if something like what happened in Thessalonica when we were there could happen here, that would be great. So can you pray that that would happen here as well? I love the way he puts it because... He's, he's basically saying pray in a way that puts all the emphasis on the power of God and not on Paul, right? Isn't that great? He says that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. That word speed is a sprinting term. It's the idea that, that it would be on the move, that it would sort of furrow the ground, that it would open people up so great things would happen. And I was sitting there thinking this week, I was sort of sitting in front of the fireplace and meditative and snow was falling and you know just but I, but my mind even though my body was sort of relaxed my mind was just wound up and i was thinking you know how can we make the greatest impact on the kingdom of god here in alaska how can we be great as a local church what what programs you know how do we design the ministry to be maximally effective and exciting and compelling and and moving on you know how how moving forward how can we do this and i was just dreaming dreams but i was tempered and cautioned and comforted by this little phrase, the word of the Lord, that that would speed ahead and be honored. You know what? No matter what I sort of strategize or think up, or we work together with the elders and pastors to try to bring about, the word of God is speeding ahead. God's kingdom is being built, irrespective of me. And it was just sort of this pressure off moment for me to think the word of the Lord is powerful. This is the two-edged sword that divides between joint and marrow. This is what opens people up. Forever the word of Lord, the Lord has been spoken. And it's active. And, and God is making the decisions as to who's going to be open to the gospel and not. And it's actually very interesting because the very next verse says, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. And so there's no guarantee that things are going to work out in Corinth like they did in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, the word of God just, just took off. And so 
So I kind of am crystallizing this first point under what you see on the screen. No matter how hard you try, the word will do its work. That's what this meant you know, to my own life. And I'm sharing these outline points sort of as practical guides um, for living the Christian life. And that, that's basically what Paul is doing when he's saying pray for us in this way. No matter how hard you try, the word will do its work. And he wants the church to see that. It happened among them in a powerful way. And you may remember in 1 Thessalonians 5.8 that Paul talked about how effective the word of God was in the church. You might turn back there in verse 5. Because our gospel, this is the idea of the word spreading, came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received, here it is, the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying, look, this is how, this was our missionary strategy. We showed up and we spoke the Bible to you. We we spoke the word to you and you responded with full conviction. Does that always happen? No, it doesn't. You know, some sow, some water, and some harvest. But sometimes the word of God is speeding in a direction and we're used in a powerful way where we speak truth and eyes open and great things happen. They were receiving the word happily while they were being afflicted. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That would be kind of like um, our church having an influence throughout Alaska and then permeating over down to Vancouver and then then down into the lower 48. And you become this known church. Why? Because the word had sped ahead and did a supernatural work in people's hearts. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, I'm sitting over here in Corinth, the New York City of back then, and we're hearing about you. That's Achaia. I mean, we're hearing about your impact there. And he's saying, I wish that it would happen that way here. You know, they needed to hear this. They needed to hear that the word of God runs ahead. Psalm 147.15 is probably where Paul was thinking when he wrote these words. God's word says, he sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. Isn't that exciting? His word runs swiftly. So he had that in mind. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. I love this. He was quoting a good pastoral friend of his. He says, if you can explain what is going on, then God isn't doing it. Right? If we could sort of strategically say, you know, we're getting this effect or we're getting bang for our buck in this way or that way. And that's why things are exploding. Then maybe we've created something that's not even really God and what he's doing. Right? It's got to be, first and foremost, the Word. The Word is the change agent, and the Holy Spirit is working through that Word, transforming hearts, giving glory to Christ. That's found also here, that it may speed ahead and be honored. When does that honor effect happen? It happens when the Word is doing the work. It's, it's genuine, humble doxology. It's the word glorifier, doxa. And it's happening in the hearts of people when the Word of God is affecting them. So he's saying, I want that to happen. Look at verse 2. That we may be delivered and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Principle number two is no matter how bad it gets, God is able to deliver you. 
So Paul's saying, look, pray for me, pray for us that the word will spread, but pray also that we'll be delivered from wicked and evil people. In Corinth, we know that there were people who were false teachers. Paul called them super apostles, kind of sarcastically. He was saying, look, you guys are mega apostles or uber apostles, and you know, I'm just this guy who robs churches. That's kind of his approach to say, come on. You know, give me strength. <laughs> Second Corinthians eleven thirteen through 14 says that they were disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, like Satan, an angel of light. They were demon-inspired people, probably. Second Corinthians 12, 7 talks about the thorn, of the thorn in the flesh that is like this spear in his side. That could be a physical malady, but probably, from my perspective, it was the oppression of demonic influence through these false teachers that he prayed three times that he would be delivered from. He's praying here that he would be delivered from evil and wicked people. And in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, it, it says that there was a messenger of Satan that was sent to terrorize him. The word messenger is the Greek word angelos. It's the idea of a demon. A demonized person was terrorizing Paul, and it was very, very difficult for his life. And so he's saying, just Please, men, pray, church, pray, sisters, pray for me that we'll be delivered. But in, in the way that he asked that question or for that request, he's also saying, look, remember, God delivers. Like, you need to hear this because you're going to have some hard conversations in your own flock and God will deliver you from those people. Wicked people, evil people, or people who are just confused and lazy that, that need help. You need to be able to have hard conversations with the knowledge that God delivers from wicked people. Number three, no matter how unfaithful you are, God will save you. That's the principle from three. He says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish and guard you against the evil one. The evil one there is a reference to Satan. And we are delivered from Satan on a daily basis. You say, maybe you feel like you're not being delivered from Satan, but imagine if God's deliverance wasn't there for you. There's satanic influence. There's a devil that we need to resist. We're fighting against his machinations and strategies and the way he twists scripture and, and brings you know, division in the church and division in the body of Christ. And there is satanic influence around us, but we're being delivered presently from him because he's not bound. He's a roaring lion wreaking havoc. But we are protected because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, right? And so we're, we're delivered now, but we're ultimately going to be delivered. And part of our prayer life needs to reflect that. Matthew chapter 6, which is the Lord's Prayer that we studied recently, says, deliver us from evil. But that's a masculine tense, and I believe it's deliver us from the evil one. Just as Jesus was delivered in the wilderness, we're Three times he was tempted, but scripture was coming to mind and he wasn't falling to those temptations. That's what Paul is saying. The Lord's faithful. He'll establish you and guard you. In other words, you're going to have some wicked and evil people in your flock and some hard conversations. But you know what? Satan is not ultimately going to win. You are going to be delivered from the evil one in this life and then in our life to come. I love that attribute of the faithfulness of God. Look at verse 3. The Lord, this is Jesus, a reference to him. He is faithful. In the Old Testament, that's the word hesed in the Hebrew, and it's talking about God's faithfulness. Just like how God was faithful in the midst of Israel and its sin. 
I was thinking of Lamentations 3.23, where Jeremiah, at the end of his prophetic life, where he had warned the nation over and over again, do not fall prey to idolatry, don't follow after the world system, don't follow after the Gentile nations, which would be satanically energized. But they did, and ultimately, you know, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come in and destroy Judah, and his Jeremiah is standing there looking at the temple of God in Judah burned to the ground. He's lamenting and lamentation is really the prophet lamenting over this, but he's lamenting in hope. His world is falling apart. He's watching a picture of God's kingdom burning to the ground, but he sees beyond it and is able to say the words, great is your faithfulness. Crying through tears with hope. God's faithful. You know what? A great definition for the faithfulness of God is God will always keep his promises. He's a promise keeper. He won't let you go. He won't let you be snatched out of his hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Your salvation is secure because God said it that way. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's with us, even through battles, even through hard conversations. And that's what Paul is doing. Again, he's opening the church up and saying, pray for me. And by the way, let me give you some reminders. The word is speeding ahead. We're going to be delivered from wicked and evil people. And God is faithful. You're going to be established. Satan can't destroy your life. That's what he's doing. And that, that just is a way for the church to be able to say, okay... All right, we're under affliction. There's a lot going on. We're not under judgment and God is faithful and we're able to go into some church ministry here. All right, principle number four. No matter how unsure of yourself you are, God will empower you. He will empower us. Now, this is where Paul is sort of shifting gears in what he's saying and he's moving out of the prayer request time into a time of affirmation. And if you ever want people to listen to you about anything that is a hard conversation, a great way to open them up is through affirmation. And I don't mean by that you should do that superficially or you should do that in a way that's synthetic or manipulative, but I do believe that if you take some time and think through positive things that you can say about someone, positive spiritual qualities that people have, things that that God is doing in their life that you see, ways that you can say, look, there are evidences of God's grace in your life. God is alive and well in you, and I can see this. Now, can I, can I also mention something that's a little bit of a struggle for me or something that I believe you need to see from Scripture? That's the way to go into a conversation. If you have a raw introduction, you're perhaps going to have a raw response, right? Verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord about you. I love the way he puts that, by the way. The accent mark is on what God is doing in their life. He says, we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are, that you are doing and will do The things we command. There are a lot of people out there who are affirmation junkies, right? I mean, you want to be commended. I mean, I know there are times that I do. And you just, you sort of are searching for it. Give me that next pick-me-up. 
But you know what? That's like drinking a Coke. You're going to have a sugar high and a sugar low. And you don't want to live that way because that makes sort of your, your life and ministry one big idol that you're bowing down to. And that needs to be slain because God is the one that receives the glory for anything we do, right? Well, the way Paul puts things here is a great balanced way to say, look, I have confidence in the Lord about you. In other words, my confidence is in the fact that God is working in your life. Like this incredible splash effect that has happened down in Thessalonica is because of what God did. His word did this, and I have confidence in that. And then he says, in what you're doing and will do what he had commanded. Now, don't get thrown by the word command here. Uh, Paul, as an apostle, was giving a command. He was giving a directive, but he was an apostle, so he was speaking the word of God as an inspired instrument. Just as he has written these inspired words, he was speaking these commands, and he had commanded them to follow the principle of working a job. In First Thessalonians, you find that that command and principle was back there and he was saying, look, I want you to live an honest and quiet life and work to provide for yourself. And he's saying that command needs to be put into effect again with my second letter. You need to be addressing this in the church. He does it in such a way that doesn't sort of provoke a man-centeredness. He's saying, look, God's working in your life, so be willing to address this command because I know you believe in it. I know you'll do it. I remember this conference speaker who um, sort of created this conference that he was one of the speakers of. And somehow he was able to get some really high-name speakers to come and, and speak at the conference. And so when they would speak and then he would speak, it just didn't fit. He really shouldn't have been there. And I, I got insider information where this person actually talked to that speaker about this and just said, you know, there's a dilemma here. Maybe you don't need to be speaking. And actually, he had some character issues in his life and probably needed to step down. And what the speaker said to him just was remarkable and scary. He said, you know, the best part about speaking for me is the strokes I receive after I speak. I mean, that that's just disqualification. He just did not need to be speaking at that time. Ministry should be cast in this way. We have confidence in the Lord's work, in what God is doing, even in spite of us. Another thing I wanted to point out from verse 4 is the idea of a command, a command. You know, sometimes in our culture today, even in our church culture, we bristle at that word command because we're, we're so inundated with voices of postmodernism that say, look, you know, you should just apply the Bible as, as another voice in your life. You know, that you can apply to you one way and to you another way. But really everything is sort of relative and sort of out there and unclear. Often people are running from accountability and the authority of God's word when they talk that way. I mean, there is a a preaching book I read that said, you know, basically, when I study, I talk to certain people and they help me figure out what I'm supposed to say in my sermon. And then we pull a chair up for the Bible to interact in the dialogue. That's scary stuff because that's the kind of postmodern thinking that says this isn't the word of God that's forever settled in heaven that gives us direction. I just sort of scan searched the word command in the Bible And that word command, and there's plenty of other synonyms for that word, but that word command alone is used 200 times from Genesis to Revelation. The word authority is used 99 times. 
Paul told Titus this. He said, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I mean, that kind of language can can cause us to bristle, right? Let no one disregard you, exhort and rebuke with all authority. I mean, who does Titus think he is? Well, he was just a guy standing up with the Bible. This is the authoritative book. Nothing that I ever say outside of the scripture really carries any authoritative weight whatsoever with me. I mean, it's just opinion. It's just counsel. But when the word of God speaks, we all need to listen. We're all yielding under this book together because this is the way God guides us. Oftentimes in preaching, people um, sort of recast it as giving a talk or in Bible study. Hey, let's just have a conversation. But really, we need to come and listen to the commands that are given. And this is a command that is going to be explained in verses 6 through 15. All right, the last principle, last principle. No matter how lost you are, God will direct you. No matter how lost you are, God will direct you. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. You know what Paul is doing here? He had asked for prayer early on, saying, pray for us. And now he circles around and he's praying for the church. He wants to pray for them. This is a prayer. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. He wants to reach them, those who are struggling to obey. You know, there are times in our lives where we really know the right thing to do, and we see it in Scripture, and we're we're ready to apply it, but but we kind of get on this roller coaster ride, and we say, yeah, you know, I want to do it, but, you know, I'm not sure about that. And you know it's the Lord's will, but you're kind of directing yourself away from doing the right thing. Right? You kind of go back and forth. Maybe I'm up here alone with that dilemma. I don't know. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Where you're just up and down, all over the place, and you just, you know the right thing to do, but you just don't want to do it. And I remember I was at a point in my pastoral ministry in the past, and I knew the right thing to do. I, it was something that was, that was being discussed on an elder level, and I was receiving some counsel, and I just, I, I just didn't like it. I just didn't, and I could justify my position biblically, but, you know, and eventually I just kind of went, Lord, you're in control, and I I think that the scripture applies in this way in my life, and so I'm going to yield, and it just calmed everything down in my life, and then these guest speakers came from Zimbabwe, Conrad Mbewe and his wife came over, and they were these speakers, or he was this preacher at our church, and they came and we were honoring them. And uh, he's a wonderful man and preacher in um, Lusaka. And it's a little town in Zambia. And in Lusaka, he is known as a great preacher. And World Magazine actually highlighted him as the Spurgeon of Africa. And to hear him preach is pretty remarkable. He's a pretty incredible speaker. And he, he just really brings things to life for you. So I was out to dinner with him and my wife and his wife, and we're talking about this dilemma that I had sort of come through in this roller coaster ride. Judy was actually kind of on the side addressing it with um, um, Conrad's wife, and she looked at Judy, and she just smiled, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, aren't you so glad that you finally learned what God was trying to teach you so that he wasn't going to have to keep teaching you down the road? Aren't you glad that this can be over? And she just smiled at Judy, and we went... 
yeah. <laughs> so it was really sort of a affirmation that, you know, we made the right decision and we got off the roller coaster ride because we allowed the Lord to direct our hearts back center to do the right thing. And we did. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Steadfastness meaning perseverance. This church needed to persevere through some difficult waters and have some hard conversations. All right, let's bring this to home with a few take-home points. Number one, do you most often request prayer for you or for God to use you? Let that sink in for a minute. It really is the difference between being sort of totally self-focused or leaning on the gospel and thinking in terms of how God's mission is unfolding and how you could be a part of that. Do you most often request prayer for you, your own personal needs, or for how God can use you? Now, I'm not, not a realist. I believe we should pray for our needs physically, spiritually. We should do that, and we should be in it for each other. But we should also be able to step outside of ourselves a little bit and say, Lord, I want you to bless me so that I can be useful to you. And I think that's what Paul is doing here and modeling for us. It's very important. It's the difference between being sort of filled with yourself and and sort of being able to get out and see a greater horizon of usefulness and blessing. Number two, do you recognize that God's word is running ahead of you? Remember what I was saying in sort of this confession that, you know, it's easy to get wound up in your mind in terms of what we think the best way forward is for a ministry or for a direction. Perhaps even in your job or your business, you know, you might be thinking, man, how can I make my greatest impact in this world? And instead, we should be relying on the Lord, realizing that his word sprints ahead, that he's doing the work. And we should place no confidence in our flesh. Number three, do you acknowledge God's involvement in your life, delivering, establishing, guarding, and directing you? This is what Paul is basically saying to this church. God is at work in your life, delivering, establishing, guarding, and directing. I mean, God is involved in your life as believers. He is. Sometimes it's not the question of whether or not he's involved in your life. The question is, are you recognizing his involvement in your life? You see the difference? As a believer... We should assume that he's leading us, that he's guiding us, that he's working. And so I think sometimes it's important for us to say, Lord, how are you working? Let me strive to understand the way that you're working through relationships and people and experiences in my life. Number four, do you struggle with the authority of the Bible? You say, no, not at all. I'm, I'm sitting under the Bible right now. I'm listening to expository preaching. I'm, I love the Bible. Well, practically, do you struggle with the Bible? Not just in terms of what you know, what you're learning, but are you willing to yield to the Bible? Yeah, but it's, it's an ancient book. It's out of touch. It's, you know, it's, it was written 4,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago. I mean, how could it... I mean, is any of that in your heart? Or do you go to the Bible and say, Lord, show me how I'm supposed to live and how I'm supposed to think? Because we're fighting against postmodernism. There are voices that are 
that are in our heads that we might not even know we have in our heads that are trying to undo the authority of this book. And if we don't stand up and defend the truth, no one else will. This is our task, this is our mission to live it and to preach it and to proclaim it and to watch it run ahead and watch it transform lives and watch people melt before us because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, God, you've given us a precious gift to meditate on and to know. And I pray, God, that our faithfulness in the truth um, would not be based on obligation or guilt or fear or duty. But, Lord, that we would just come to your truth because it's living water. It refreshes our souls. It gives us guidance. I pray, God, that we would be willing to apply the word to our own lives. If some of us are in the sin of laziness, we're not um, sort of taking our responsibility to use our talents and gifts to provide for ourselves and others, that, God, we would obey, that we would yield. And, Lord, where we have relationships with people that we need to have some difficult conversations with them, I pray that we would be emboldened by the Scripture And by these truths that we know that you are the deliverer, you are the conqueror, you are the warrior God who's fighting for us and with us. And God, we just want to be in concert with what you're doing. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the sacrificial death on the cross of Jesus Christ and how his blood has washed away all of our guilt stains. We are complete in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for our closing now. I want to thank you again for coming to worship at Anchorage Grace Church. If you've never come before or you haven't been in a long time, we'd love to hear from you. In the bulletin, there's a prayer request sheet where you can fill out um, your name and prayer request and give us some information about you so we can be in contact with you. Also, I have the ministry table over here, places to sign up and hear about things, be connected, read the bulletin. Um, we, we want to sort of be a family here, and so it's a way for us to try to communicate and connect with you through all kinds of means. And if you have any spiritual needs, we, I'm up front. I'm happy to pray with you. There'll be men and women as counselors who can work through issues with you even this morning. We also have some food in the back. Don't run out the back door unnecessarily. Get to know each other. Spend time with each other in fellowship. That's also part of our worship. And a reminder that tonight again, 6 p.m., is our children's ministry program for Christmas. And I invite you back for that. You're dismissed.